0: One evening I went to visit two NMU students. Jen and Mitch. And Jen was from Tennessee. It's always interesting hearing a southern accent here in the UP. I'll never forget that. But Jen told me her story. She said she grew up at a church where all she ever heard about was the love of God. That was the only message that was given in that church. And then she graduated from high school, she uh, went off to college, and she began reading the Bible herself. And Jen said this to me, I discovered that God is also a God of wrath. She said to me, it's scary, isn't it? You know, that's the only person who's ever said to me they were scared of the wrath of God. The only time I've ever heard that. And it was said by an NMU student. I thought to myself, Jen, I've got some good news for you. You see, because she was convinced she was under the wrath of God, I didn't have to convince her that that was true. And she was so ready to hear the good news She just drank in the gospel like life-saving water. Uh, There's a well-known pastor and author by the name of Stephen Lawson. And Stephen Lawson had this to say, Grace is not amazing until you know the wrath of God. And that is absolutely 100% true. We can never appreciate God's grace. We can never be ready for His grace until we know that we are under judgment. Now many people today, I don't have to tell you this, do not believe in God's judgment. Many years ago, a lady said to me from a church, very much like the church that Jen grew up in, she said to me, my God is a God of love. And what she really meant was, my God would never judge anyone, He's too loving for that. And that's what Jen believed until she read it in the Bible for herself, and then she was ready to hear about God's grace. Now in the first century, uh, the Jewish people did not believe that God would judge them either. Gentiles, yes, God will judge them, but Jews, no. And so, in Romans chapter 2, when Paul said to the Jews, you are under the judgment of God as well, they objected. They said no way. And so what Paul did was he answered those objections in Romans chapter 3. And Paul said two attributes of God require him to judge sin. This morning, as we turn to Romans chapter 3, we're simply going to look at those two attributes. Read the title together with me. God is faithful and He is just. And this morning, it's in understanding these two attributes that help us to see Why grace is necessary. Let's open to Romans chapter 3 and I want to begin just with a brief word of prayer. Father, this is so very essential. Before we can ever be saved, we have to know we're lost. We have to recognize the burden of sin and God's faithfulness and justice in judging that sin. And only then is the grace of God good news. Teach us now about who you are, that we may understand you properly, so that your grace would be amazing to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's begin, shall we, with... God's faithfulness, that's where the Apostle Paul begins in Romans 3, starting at verse 1. And I want you to follow along as I read verses 1 to 4. And listen to what God says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged." Now, let's notice what Paul says here to us about the faithfulness of God. First of all, he tells us that God has made promises in His Word. The two objections in verse 1 correspond to the points made in chapter 2, verses 17 down to verse 29. You remember last week in verses 17 to 24, Paul said, "...being a Jew does not guarantee salvation." And then in verses 25 to 29, he said, having the sign of circumcision will also not guarantee salvation. See, the Jews had confidence in three things. Number one, we're the chosen people of God. Number two, we have a covenant with God that He made with our forefather Abraham. And number three, we have the seal or the sign of that covenant in circumcision. And you can just see how their minds are turning. Wait a minute, wait a minute. If these advantages or if these things that have been given to us uh, are of no advantage, then why did God give them to us in the first place? And you can hear what they are saying. Paul, aren't you saying that God gave us things that ultimately are not doing us any good? I want you to notice Paul's response. Look at it in verse 2. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. These advantages are much in every way. To begin with, you Jewish people, you've been given the oracles of God. Oracles of God are His sayings, His words. And it refers to the whole Old Testament. And over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, God told the people just how blessed they were That they were given his very words. Let's read this from Psalm 147, 19 and 20. Join me and notice the tremendous advantage the Jews had. Let's read it together. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord for His favor to us." And look what the Jews had. Knowledge of God's statutes, His judgment, in a way that no other nation on earth had known. And then we know that in these oracles, the greatest promise that God made to the Jewish people was He would send to them a Savior through their lineage. Yes, they had great advantages. Now, I could just hear somebody this morning, maybe after last Sunday, advancing arguments very similar to the arguments the Jews made. Pastor, last week you said to us that baptism doesn't wash away our sins. Pastor, you said that church membership will not make us member in a family of God. You also told us that communion, the Lord's Supper, taking that wafer, does not enable us to partake of Christ. And I just hear somebody say, well, Pastor, if that's all true then why did God give those things to begin with, right? It's the same argument here. By the way, the greatest answer that I've ever read given to why God gave us all those things came from Pastor Charles Spurgeon. And I want you to notice what he said. Look at this. Every gospel privilege makes us loathe sin. Prayer... Praise, the reading of Scripture, the fellowship of the saints, the table of the Lord. All of those things make us despise sin. Think of baptism for a moment. Last year, we had a baptism on Saturday night because a storm was coming. We had to cancel on Sunday. And so a number of us gathered here on the platform as a young person, a young adult, was baptized. As soon as she came up out of the water, we began spontaneously singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'd been saved by that point 45 years. And yet when I saw that young woman come up out of the water proclaiming her faith in Christ that she had been born again not by that water, but by what Christ had done when she trusted Him, it inspired me. I said, yeah, that's what I want to do again. I want to once again reaffirm that I'm saying no to the world. And I'm saying yes to Jesus. Jesus. And all the signs and rites and ministries of the church teach us to hate sin more and more. But then think about this. Whatever teaches us to hate sin also teaches us our need of God's grace, right? And those things are not given to save us. But to show us how much we need Jesus. That's why God gave them. Now notice the second thing that Paul says about the faithfulness of God. Number two, God will be true to His promises. To the advantages of possessing the Word of God, the Jews bring another objection. They say, well, Paul, you are saying that the Jews were unfaithful. Look at that in verse 3. Well, what if some of us were unfaithful? So Paul, what you're saying about us as Jews is we haven't obeyed God. And then when the Savior, Jesus, actually came, we didn't believe Him. We didn't trust Him. If that's true, Paul, then I want you to understand what you're saying. Our faithlessness will nullify God's ability to be faithful to his promises. It's interesting here in verse 2 and 3, there's a play on the Greek word for faith. When he uses the word entrusted unfaithful, faithlessness, and faithfulness, it is all based on the same word for faith or for trust. The argument sounds like this. The promises were entrusted to the Jews. They did not trust. So their lack of trust makes God untrustworthy. He cannot fulfill the promises that He made. Paul says to the Jews, if we failed as badly as you say we have, then God will fail in fulfilling His promises. Did you notice what Paul says to that argument as he begins verse 4? Three words. By no means. It's unthinkable. That's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. He says, let God be true. Though everyone were a liar. Uh, the word liar here simply means people are inherently unreliable. How many of us would disagree with that this morning? People cannot be depended upon to always do good. How many of us would say, yeah, You got that one right? But God is true, He's reliable. Say, isn't that the foundation of the whole Bible? God keeps His promises. So, what we are learning here is this. If people fail to participate in God's promises, whose fault is it? It's people's, isn't it? It's never God's fault. He's reliable and true. We are unreliable. And then notice how he brings this to a conclusion. It becomes very clear then that God's promises include judgment for sin. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now that is a quotation from Psalm 51 verse 4. And this was David's great confession after he had sinned so grievously. Let's read verse 4 together of Psalm 51 that Paul quotes at this point. Let's read it together. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. Now let's think for just a moment. The man who wrote this was one of Israel's best, was he not? In fact, he was the man after what? God's own heart. Do you know there is no one else in all of Scripture who said, who about whom it is said. He is a man or a woman after God's own heart. David was absolutely unique. What we would say about him, he was the best of the very best. But but David proved to be a liar and unreliable. Yes, he did. Grievously so. He committed adultery. Then he murdered the husband. Then he covered it up for an entire year. Israel's very best sinned in the worst ways. And I want you to notice the reason why he says he wrote Psalm 51. The little soul there tells us why. I want you to understand I have written Psalm 51 so that you will know I am wrong, God is right, and I deserve His judgment. There is a statement I'd like to put in front of you because the Jewish people would have taken great comfort in this statement. Look at what it says. Righteous Redeemer, you're faithful and true. Don't we love these words about God today? Don't we? And the Jews would have said, that's our God. Because He's righteous and faithful and true, He's our Redeemer and we take refuge in that. But I want you to look at three of those four words. Righteous, faithful, and true. Do those words apply to God's judgment as well as to His mercy? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And the very words the Jews took refuge in as providing a Redeemer, the Bible says, are also the basis for God's judgment. I want you to think about America today. Millions of homes in our country have a Bible in them. We have more bibles and more translations with more study helps than we have ever had before. There are still churches we can attend, there are Sunday schools we can go to, there are wanna programs, there's VBS as we just heard, there is youth group, there is the radio, there is television. There's the witness of our parents There are people actively sharing the gospel on a weekly basis. Let me ask you this if we end up lost, whose fault is it? It's ours. It's ours. Let God be true, though everyone else is a liar. You see, God's faithfulness requires judgment. Now, there's another attribute of God that Paul talks about here. And the second attribute is that God is just. The Jews were not finished objecting to the gospel. They said, Paul, now just wait a minute, wait a minute here. If sin shows how righteous God is, then how can He turn around and judge us for that sin? Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteousness to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, Paul is saying. This is what my objectors were saying to me. Now listen to the argument here. What it's saying to us is this. The gospel teaches us that the worse we are, the more righteous God is in judging If that's the case, then when He judges us, He would be condemning us for something that ultimately is good for God, showing how righteous He is. How just is that? And then it leads to an even further absurdity. The worse we are, the more glory God gets. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil so that God will be more glorified? Look at verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge that we are saying. You see the argument here? The more evil we do, the more glory God gets as a righteous judge. Let me see if I can uh, illustrate in a common way what the Jews were saying about the gospel and therefore why it could not be true. Uh, When do the police in Marquette look the best and get the most press? Isn't it when they capture the worst criminal? Right? Right? Uh, If the police capture a petty thief, you know where that news gets buried? It gets buried in the police log on the third page. But if they capture a murderer, that's front page news. And everyone says, look what wonderful police we have in Marquette now who would argue on the basis of that we ought to go out and commit greater crimes so the police in Marquette can look better and better and get more glory is there anyone here that would argue that I didn't think so now cannot you hear the Jewish objector can't you hear this Paul, that is how much sense the gospel makes. Did you notice that Paul faced this wherever he went? He says in verse 8, that's what people slanderously charge that we are saying. And I want you to think about it. This is how it goes. If none of us can keep the law, and we are totally dependent upon the grace of God and God forgives freely, then the Gospel encourages us to sin and not even try. Suppose that I'm a really bad sinner in the eyes of the world, and you're a really good sinner in the eyes of the world, and if both of us cannot please God, and both of us are dependent totally on grace, and both of us are freely forgiven for all of our sins, then why shouldn't you be as bad a sinner as I am? Right? You know what this almost sounds like? This almost sounds like the person who says, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and sin anyway, because God will forgive. You ever thought that? You ever heard that? I've heard that. A young woman I know what I'm about to do is sin is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. Because I know God will forgive. And the Jews are saying to Paul, Paul, that's exactly where your gospel leads. This, This can't be the truth. Because that's where it ends up. And I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul responds so vigorously to that. He says there are two things that we need to understand. All right? Number one. God's justice must be satisfied against sin. Look at verse 6. By no means. It's unthinkable. Then how could God judge the world? God's justice against sin must be satisfied. And then notice the second answer. God's justice can never condone sin. At the end of verse 8, Paul says, people who think like that, their condemnation is just. That's a fallacious argument. You remember Jen, the NMU student I told you about? In the course of sharing the gospel with her, which she drank in, I used an illustration that many of us know uh, to help her understand the great weight of sin. It's the three sins a day illustration. And I said to Jen and her friend Mitch, suppose I sin just three times a day. She said, that would still be over a thousand times a year. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm the one that's supposed to say that. She's the only person who's ever finished that illustration for me. An NMU student. And this is what she instinctively understood. I've been unreliable. I've sinned. Not once, not twice, but many, many times, a righteous, faithful, and true God must punish my sin. Her reading of the Bible taught her that. By the way, you may have noticed as you looked at the screen that he is faithful and just. It's part of a verse in Scripture. And the reason that we don't see the whole verse is because the other words are too tiny for us to read. So let me bring up the words in sharper focus from 1 John 1.9 and you read them together with me. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the other side of God's faithfulness and justice. Because of what God did at the cross, His justice is satisfied. And now He can freely forgive all who come to Him. By Christ. You know, when I shared this truth with Jen so many years ago, it all made sense. It all made sense. And she was just completely ready to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. You know what she said to me? She said, Can we hold hands as we pray? And I receive Christ as my only hope of salvation. It's the only time anyone has ever asked me to hold hands while we did that. And that night, Jen gave her heart to Jesus Christ. Grace became amazing to her. She later moved back to Tennessee. The last we heard from her, she was involved in campus ministry at a university in Tennessee. Her salvation did not lead her to a life of more sin. It led to a life of sharing the very message that had saved her and could save others. And that's what the Gospel does. But the Gospel only becomes good news when we understand the faithfulness and justice of God. Let's bow together, shall we, in prayer. just before I lead us in prayer and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Have you ever become afraid of the wrath of God? Have you ever seen yourself as under his just judgment for your sin. It is only when you come to that place that you will see the gospel's necessary. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are without hope of ever pleasing Him on our own. And unless somebody comes and takes our place and dies for our wrongs, His justice cannot be satisfied. And if His justice cannot be satisfied, He cannot save sinners. And grace is only amazing when you know the wrath of God. Maybe you're here today and and like Jen, you've come to understand those things and, and you want to be sure that Christ is your Lord and Savior. You've been unreliable. God has been true. You know that. And you want to trust His position Provision. You can do something like this. You can say in your heart, just between you and God, no one else having to even know silently, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I've proven unreliable. I'm undone. I cannot save myself. But I believe who Jesus is, the Son of God who came to this earth. I believe He died in my place and paid for my sins. He rose again that I might have victory over sin, death, hell, and the devil. And that I might have new life. And you can say to the Lord, I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own way And Jesus, I'm turning to You. Come and be my Savior. Come and be my Lord. Forgive me of all of my sins. Give me the gift of life. And make me a child of God. And now, Lord believing Your Word and resting in Your promise. I'm going to follow You. I know I won't do it perfectly. I will still sin and fail. But I will seek to follow You because of all You've done for me. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, today, only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes and soften hearts of stone. And the Holy Spirit has done that for many in this room. And He is here today while the Gospel is preached to do the same in all who will hear and come to Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, tug at hearts today. Do not let people alone. Don't allow them to remain in their lost condition for one more day. But woo them to a loving Savior who invites them to Him. How grateful we are